the Popey Podcast You Didn't Know You Needed, where we talk history through Pope-colored glasses and some of the craziest, most popular stories you've never heard of. It's a real joy for us to welcome you all here. I would like to invite each of you to listen. Do not be afraid. P.A. Jesu Domine. This is a popular popular podcast. Do not be afraid. Welcome to the Popular History Podcast. History through Pope Colored Glasses. My name is Greg, and this is episode Ot Point Twenty and Wonders. All of these Ot episodes are made to let us build our Pope Colored Glasses so we can use the same lenses when we look at history together in the main show. If you're lost, start at the beginning. Those of you listening carefully may have caught that I called this Ot Point Twenty, not Ot Point Two O. I've been on the fence about that approach for a while, held together by inertia, and I'm going to go ahead and make a change, and then we'll figure out the inertia later. If you don't know what I mean, don't worry about it, because it's a pedantic little thing. Anyways, this episode continues our rosary-themed tour of the Second Testament, a.k.a. the New Testament, with the second luminous mystery of the rosary, the wedding at Cana. Some of you more well-versed in the chronology of Jesus' life may feel like I skipped something major by not having us head off into the desert this week. But hey, I take my loose rosary theming seriously, and perhaps oddly, there's no mystery corresponding to Jesus' time in the desert. Don't worry, mortification fans. We'll be covering that in due time, but thematically it fits more with the sorrowful mysteries. So... We'll be covering it when we get to those, specifically Ot.27. For now, we've got a wedding to look at. And, more importantly, though I wouldn't say that part to the happy couple, we've got Jesus' first public miracle. Now, this is listed as Jesus' first public miracle to basically gloss over the fact that we have very little record of what Jesus got up to in his first 30-odd years of life. The biblical apocrypha records various miracles of Jesus the Wonder Kid, but it would hardly do to have the first miracle we talk about here being something like smiting a playmate, though the thing about turning clay doves into real doves is pretty neat. Now, of course, we're getting into the distinction between private revelation and public revelation, which is one we are going to revisit near the end of this series. Suffice to say, if it made it into the Bible, it's public revelation. If it didn't, it's private revelation, meaning that there's no new public revelation coming. And of course, private revelation may be not true revelation at all. Now, setting public versus private aside, if you think about what Jesus' first overall miracle would have been from a Catholic perspective, I'm saying it's actually something we already discussed, namely the Immaculate Conception. After all, Mary was saved from sin, like everyone else, by virtue of her son, the Redeemer. Her case is a bit different, though, because in Catholic teaching, she was preserved from her conception, which gets a bit odd chronologically since she was Jesus' mother. But yes, I think it's safe enough to clock in Jesus' first overall miracle, at least the first one where he acted independently from the rest of the Trinity, 
as saving his mother Mary around the year 20 BC. Keep in mind, the chronology is allowed to be a bit fuzzy here, since Jesus is God, and not just another creature. He was around before the Incarnation. Indeed, he himself said, before Abraham was, I am, in John chapter 8, verse 59. So, anyways, back to the narrative present. What was Jesus' first public miracle? Who did he heal? What basic need did he fulfill? You gotta fight for your right to party. Well, he, he fought for your right to party. Or at least, for the wedding guests' right to party. And if that sounds like a weird start to the public miracles of the Messiah, you're not wrong, but it might be helpful to recall that technically, this wasn't his idea. It was his mother's. And if you're wondering why Catholics are always going to Mary for stuff instead of straight to Jesus, it's in large part because this story shows that Mama Mary is chill, and has great ideas, and her son listens to her. Let's get into it. Quote, And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus was also bidden, and his disciples, to the marriage. And when the wine failed... The mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. And Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Now there were six water-pots of stone set there after the Jews' manner of purifying, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water-pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the ruler of the feast. And they bear it. And when the ruler of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants that had drawn the water knew, the ruler of the feast calleth the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man setteth on first the good wine, then, when men have drunk freely, then that which is worse. Thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. End quote. I don't know why I picked that translation. It's definitely a little less modern than I'm usually doing, it may have been straight up the King James Bible, the KGV, the OG in English, more or less. Anyways, first, note how right at the beginning of things, Jesus basically tells Mary he's not going to do anything about the wine situation. Then, Mary turns around and tells the servants to do whatever he tells them to, without so much as hinting that he might not be up for her plan. Which... One might piously read as her being submissive to God's will in all things, so she's going to have them defer to him rather than to her, but honestly, I think a plainer reading of things here has Mary as a mother whose basic plan is to more or less shame her son into taking care of the wine problem, because he'd be in the socially awkward position of refusing to help otherwise. Granted, 
the servants were probably not expecting more help than Jesus maybe saying he had some extra wine and a cart around back, and it probably didn't matter much to them whether the wine ran out, frankly. It's not like they were drinking it. That said, though the text doesn't spell it out, and keep in mind, this is our first time seeing Mary in the Gospel of John, we were mainly looking at Matthew and Luke previously, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that she seems to have trusted her son and had a notion that he may be able to do something special, perhaps even miraculous, for the happy couple. But it really is hard to say. Reading narrowly, Mary doesn't even have a name in the Gospel of John, simply being listed as the mother of Jesus when she's mentioned, and we're already halfway through those Joe and I mentions of her, as the only other time she shows up in the Gospel of John is at the foot of the cross. The what now? Well, spoilers, ignore that. Reading even more broadly, Mary is rapidly leaving our narrative as Jesus enters adulthood, which is fairly normal for biographies, but might be a surprise for folks used to emphasizing Mary's role. Don't forget, we aren't done with her yet, as these are Pope-colored glasses we're making, and Mary has a major role within Catholicism. But in reality, this is the only recorded conversation we have between Mary and the adult Jesus in any of the Gospels. Of course, you could do worse for her last recorded words than, quote, do whatever he tells you to, end quote. Now, getting back to doing what he tells them to, the servants fill up the water pots. I really did grab a weird translation today. Can I say jars? They filled the jars with water and took them over to the ruler of the feast, which I assume means the guy was like an MC, like he might still have at a modern wedding. And perhaps more importantly, he probably could have the servants punished pretty severely if he chose to. So the servants here, doing what Jesus asked without recorded objection, may itself be a sign of their trust in him, or it was perhaps simply just a reflection of their own concern over what might happen if they disobeyed Jesus slash Mary. Fortunately for the servants, things work out well, as the water has miraculously become not only wine, but particularly good wine. Enough not only to keep the party going, but to give rise to questions about why it wasn't served earlier. And yes, folks, definitely do feel free to take this nugget from the Gospels as a fundamental aesthetic for the basis for your Jesus-based religious observances moving forward. Jesus' first public miracle was, in fact, to keep the party going. Now, as we move on, we have a bit of an issue, because... While Cana is helpfully labeled as the, quote, beginning of his signs, end quote, in John's text, we don't have such convenient guideposts for the rest if we want to look chronologically. But Greg, you might say, why not just go through them in the order they appear in the text? I mean, sure, that sounds like a plan, but keep in mind the life of Jesus is covered in not one, but four books, collectively called the Gospels, each of which is a more or less coherent account on its own, but which makes for a fair amount of repetitiveness, not to mention a general lack of understanding, when read back-to-back. -back. 
And I know this is going to be pretty rich coming from a guy who has recently started promising daily insights into thousands of elderly Italian gentlemen, half of whom are named Giovanni, uh, cardinal numbers coming June 29th. But I do try to spare you guys repetition when I can, which, future Greg here, um, yeah, that's something I really gave up on over this episode. I'm going to give you all the versions of all the miracles. Anyways, fortunately, there's always supplemental help when you're studying scripture. So even though the Gospels themselves aren't the most helpful when figuring out the chronology here, there are resources available, like the one I'm linking up at the top of the show notes. Biblium.com is certainly not an infallible source, so we can debate its accuracy here, but it does give us the framework we're going to need to tour the rest of Christ's miracles with an eye towards chronology. And in the end, we're talking about miracles here, so there's a debate about whether any of this happened at all. For one, I believe in miracles. Where are you from? You, well, yeah, no, can't actually sing that. Um, both for sparing your ears and for copyright. Anyways, uh, following Biblium's chronology, the second public miracle of Jesus is another one from John's Gospel. It's arguably not as fun as keeping the party going at Cana, but it is more in line with the standard set of expectations folks tend to have for miracles, because we're talking about the time Jesus heals the royal official's son in John 4, verses 46 through 54, quote, Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official, whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. End quote. Remember how I said there isn't convenient chronological signposting for the second miracle? Yeah, turns out I forgot about that last verse that proves me wrong there. In the end, the first portion of the Gospel of John lists seven such signs, which has led to the first twelve chapters of John being nicknamed the Book of Signs. Note here how, perhaps surprisingly, depending on your expectations going in, Jesus is actually reluctant to perform this miracle as well. So, him needing some convincing is a bit of a pattern, rather than it being a one-off bit of weirdness at Cana. And actually, it turns out this miracle takes place near Cana, too, at Capernaum, 
another spot in the overall region of Galilee. Given the absence of cars, there's a fair amount of movement in the Second Testament, which means it's not a bad idea for you to have a map, so I've linked two actually in the show notes. First one is focused on our main interest, the life and deeds of Jesus of Nazareth, which comes from a more proselytizing source than I'd normally link, but that kind of comes with the territory when your target is a uh, is a map that focuses on the life and deeds of Jesus of Nazareth. The second map is of modern Israel. A lot of the Second Testament takes place in the northern part of that, what's called the Northern District, I believe, in the Galilee area, around the Sea of Galilee, which is also labeled as the Sea of Tiberias in the modern map, and is also known as Kinneret, the Jordan River, which, of course, was the setting of our Baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist Second Testament scene from Ot.19, though you could be forgiven for forgetting that, since we spent about 10 seconds on it over the course of three episodes. Anyways, the Jordan River connects that Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea, further south, east of Jerusalem. In modern terms, the Jordan forms a fair stretch of the border between, well, uh, Jordan, and Israel, slash occupied Palestine, the modern situation of which is a topic I will probably address someday on this show, but that day is not today, so we'll just let that slash do a lot of work and wrap up our geography lesson with the fact that in modern terms, Jesus' birthplace of Bethlehem is a predominantly Palestinian community in the West Bank. If you do want better maps, charts, and better overall biblical scholarship, I cannot recommend Gary Stevens of the History in the Bible podcast enough. He also somehow secured historyinthebible.com, where he's always referring folks to his maps, so I'll do the same there. I've recommended Gary before, yes, and I will recommend him again before all is said and done, because he's not only the gold standard, but it turns out he's wonderfully supportive to newer podcasters as well. More on that in due course. Okay, back to Capernaum, and Galilee in general, the latter of which, like I mentioned, is where a lot of the gospel action is. Which, I mean, fair enough, since it's vaguely local to where Jesus grew up, his hometown of Nazareth. After healing the nobleman's son, Jesus goes on to drive out a demon, as described in the Gospel of Mark. All of the links for chapter and verse on these are going to be in the show notes, so I'm just going to stop saying them apart from letting you know which gospel we're doing. Thanks, Sean, by the way, for the gospel transitions, and thanks to Walter for the applicable gospel exit transitions. Anyways, here's Gospel of Mark. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, 
be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him, and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching, with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. The Greg says, Now, I don't want to be too nitpicky, but notice how the crowd, being amazed that the evil spirit obeyed Jesus, kind of glosses over the fact that Jesus told the spirit to be silent, and the spirit absolutely did not do that, instead crying out with a loud voice. But presumably it was silent after it left the man, and I think the leaving bit was the critical part of Jesus' orders. That said, yes, you did hear that right. We do have the demon, who was calling Jesus, quote, the Holy One of God, end quote, and we have Jesus telling the demon to shut up about that. After the first two miracles were performed reluctantly, we've got more apparent reluctance for Jesus to be doing his thing, which I've seen skeptics take as a hint that the gospel writers were maybe looking to explain why their audience hadn't heard much about Jesus or his wonders from other sources. Jesus, for his part, seems mainly concerned about the timing of things. We'll definitely see more of this hidden ministry mode as we go. Now, our selected Biblium chart only gives a citation from Mark for the first demoniac, but the passage also parallels Luke, which is why I never recommend relying on just one chart or research for serious research, as you can miss something like that. Plus, you're not going to be able to detect errors in your resource if you only use one resource. That said, I did only use one resource when checking which miracles appeared where, because time and restrictions and please don't count me as a scholarly work. Look, either way, the next miracle definitely made it into all the synoptic gospels, which is great for us because it actually has a papal connection. It's short, too, so let's go ahead and hear all three accounts. Recall that Peter, the first pope, was originally named Simon. Gospel of Matthew. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law laying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. Gospel of Mark. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew, with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Gospel of Luke. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with the high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her, and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. The Greg says... So, uh, all three accounts are closely parallel, including establishing not only the papal fact that Peter, by virtue of having a mother-in-law, was at least married at one point, which, as we discussed way back in our Peter episode, 
does not automatically mean he was married as Pope, since, last I checked, you can still have a mother-in-law if your spouse is deceased, for example. But enough about that, because my real favorite consistent detail here is the fact that in every account, once she's healed, Peter's mother-in-law immediately goes about serving them. I mean, if I was just healed, I'd probably want to whip up some thank you pancakes or whatever too, but it's just funny to me that the side detail was apparently important enough to record in every version, while the woman's name, evidently, wasn't. The less pious part of me is even left wondering if this hopping up and serving might have something to do with the fact that this is the first of our miracles Jesus performed with no sign of reluctance. <laughs> Anyways, I try to name people when I can, or at least dwell on their anonymous status if it stands out to me. So when I went looking for traditions on the name of Peter's mother-in-law, and I found not just a rabbit hole, but a true rabbit cavern. In this cavern, Peter wound up marrying one of Herod the Great's granddaughters. Alexander, being of course one of the sons Herod had had executed back in Ot Point 13. That identification puts Peter's mother-in-law as Glaphira, a woman whose story reads like the Herodian kingdom's Livia Drusilla, but also who history seems inclined to mark as deceased a few decades prior. So, just as a reminder, take everything with a grain of salt. Similarly, material in the rabbit cavern, which I of course will be linking, unquestioningly identifies Simon Peter with the only guy in Josephus' entire corpus named Peter. It's not the boldest claim, as that Peter is a throwaway character, but I want to acknowledge that tradition, while simultaneously stressing that it seems to be the product of scouring Josephus for any mention of Paul the Apostle, and then accepting the mention of a Peter as that Peter. If you hear something about Peter the Apostle having been a freeman, as near as I can tell, that association with the Peter from Josephus is where it's coming from, and I see very little timely basis for it, so have your salt ready there, too. As for Peter's wife, I couldn't find any tradition for it. Before uh, 2019, when online TV series The Chosen went with the name Eden for her. The Chosen is really good, but also it does not qualify as an early tradition. Clement of Alexandria, writing around the year 200, did come so very close to giving us a name when he stated that he was calling her by name, encouraging her during her martyrdom. So, from this we conclude that she had a name, and that St. Peter knew what her name was. Studying ancient history is uh, fun, by the way. The fifth miracle on our list is actually a whole bunch of miracles described immediately after Glyphira in all three synoptic Gospels. Gospel of Matthew. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with the word, and healed all who were sick. The Greg says... Huh. Uh, cool. You got any uh, more specifics for us? Here's a different version. Gospel of Mark. That evening, at sundown, 
they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were out sick with various diseases, and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. The Greg says, Evening, many sick healed, many demons cast out. Cool. Any, like, you know, specifics that aren't just totally random? Gospel of Luke. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any were sick with various diseases brought to them, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. The Greg says, Well, okay. This apparent giant cluster of miracles is going to be the sparsest description so far. For what it's worth, I did cheat a bit for comedic effect, cutting the ends, but we should still look at those as well, because the actual end of the Mark passage is the same thing he did with the first demoniac he came across, quote, and he would not permit the deacons to speak, because they knew him. Late editing, way future Greg here. I definitely meant to say demons, not deacons. He would not permit the demons to speak. I did record another half hour in this session, but basically I woke up realizing I was still talking. So yeah, when you fall asleep during recording, things get sloppy. So I got myself some rest. That's good. Um, there are plenty more miracles to talk about, but I think I'm going to go ahead and get myself some rest again. So we're going to go ahead and call it a wrap on Ot Point 20 Part 1 today. By my estimation, there will most likely be two um, follow-up episodes on this covering the remaining miracles of Jesus. Good night. Happy Easter.